Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence thankful that you wrote it down. If you hadn't given us your word, your living word, we would never know you. And your written word, we would have gotten it wrong. And so, Father, you've told us and you've taught us and you've been patient and you've been merciful and gracious and we praise you and worship you. And now during this time of worship, come yourself in our homes and our offices and the places, the apartments where we are. In this stillness, may we hear the soft sound of sandal feet. And Father, as always, we pray for the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins because there are many. We would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard, and there's truth in it, that the best thing you can do for your kids is to love your wife or to love your husband. Let me tell you something else that's true. If you care, if you really care for those outside the church, and we're here for them, by the way, the reason we're not taken to heaven the day we come into a relationship with Christ is there's work to do, and the work to do are the people out there. And if you... If you care for them, you know the best thing you can do for them? <laughs> you can love me. I know. I know that's not always easy, but I don't care. That's what you do for pagans. You love Steve Brown. And not only that, if I care about them, if I care for their souls, and I haven't always, a number of years ago, I was in a church in Atlanta, and I said, millions of people are going to hell, and I don't give a rip. And then I stopped and said, that's not bragging. That's confessing. I don't know their names. I don't know their children's names or what they do. But because I don't care, that means you have to pray for me. And those and those dear people did that, and the result of their prayers is a broken heart for the people, for them, for those outside the church. And the best thing I can do for them is to love you. And you're not that easy to love either, as a matter of fact. It really does sound crazy and counterintuitive, but I didn't say it, Jesus said it, so it must be true. If you have your Bible, start reading with me at the 31st verse of the 13th chapter of John. Now, you know from it what you've been taught. Uh, Gus taught us on betrayal last week. You know that in this passage, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And what he says after he does that is almost amazing. Listen to what John writes. He writes as follows. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot go. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me truly, truly? I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Oh, my. We're going to talk about love during our time together. But before we do that, I want to go down a couple of very important side roads. And the first side road is some good news. I want you to notice how Jesus deals with slow learners. Peter, and Jesus had been teaching on it, Peter said, why can't I go with you now? And Jesus didn't say to Peter, weren't you listening, dummy? Weren't you listening? Jesus doesn't do that with slow learners. He's kind and he's compassionate. And Jesus said, Peter, it's okay. You'll go with me later. I have a friend who refuses to eat at the restaurants at SeaWorld. <laughs> I asked him one time why he didn't. He said, because when I eat fish at SeaWorld, I get the feeling that I'm eating a slow learner. <laughs> well, maybe, but certainly Peter was a slow learner. I mean, Peter was always saying things that showed that he didn't get it, he didn't understand. When they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't know what to say, so he said it. Let's build a church. <laughs> and Jesus said, it's not in the text, but Jesus is a good friend of mine. Jesus said to Peter, oh, Peter, and you remember in Matthew 19, when the rich young ruler came, Jesus told him he had to give up everything and he went away sorrowful and Jesus was sorrowful too. And Peter said, hey, we left everything, man. Everything, what's in it for us? Now, if I had been Jesus, I would have said, Peter, that's not an appropriate question. I mean, you're not here for what you can get out of it. You're here for them. You're here for the world. 
You're here to make an impact of your life, but you know what Jesus did? Read it. It's in Matthew 19. Jesus told him what was in it for him. A lot of neat stuff here and now, and then eternity later on. Peter was really a slow learner. I probably, in fact, I know I do. I know more about religion than you do. I've been deep. I've been doing this for so many years, longer than most of you have been alive. And I know a lot. I've read all the books. I've taught the Bible for 50 years. I know what it says. I have studied and studied for hours in my office and my studies as I prepared to teach people what the Bible says. I know a whole lot. And if I know so much, how come I'm so slow. If I know so much, how come, how come I sin so much and hurt myself and others so deeply? If I know so much, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm a real slow learner, and maybe you are too. If you are, and if you're like me, I've got some good news for you. And the good news is simply this. Jesus loves slow learners, and he's patient, and he's kind. You know that's true because he's been that way with you. I know it's true because it's always been true with me. When I was in high school, and uh, as I was thinking about what I was going to be teaching you, I remembered her name. Her name was Mrs. Fanning, and she was a history teacher in high school. Now, you need to know I was not the best student in high school. I graduated third from the bottom in a very large high school class. Now, it got better later on because it was my money I was spending in college and graduate school so I got a lot better at it, but not in high school. And I remember after a history exam that I probably failed, Mrs. Fanning said to me, Stephen, when everybody leaves, I want you to stay because I want to talk to you. And I thought, oh my, I'm in real trouble. Mrs. Fanning came up to me and she handed my, my exam, which I had failed. And I prepared myself for the lecture, you're not living up to your potential. And she looked at me and she started crying. And then do you know what she did? She hugged me. And you say, well, what happened after that? Well, I became a much better history student than I'd been before. But I also learned something because all of life illustrates Bible doctrine. And when I think of Mrs. Fanning, I think of uh, Jesus. I think of the times when I haven't followed, when I haven't learned, when it's obvious I haven't learned. And I remember the tears and I remember the hugs and it makes it, makes it better. Before we talk about love, I've got another thing I want to show you, and it's on the subject of glorification. 
We say a lot about glory in the church. We pray it, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We sing songs about it, but what in the world is glory? Jesus said, God will glorify me and he'll do it right now. Well, it comes from a Latin word. And the definition of glory is wow. Or <laughs> if you want to do it backwards, wow again. The Latin word says extreme praise and honor. It has to do with light. And when we say about somebody that we love, man, you shined. When we say that, we're talking about glory. And we're talking about glorification. But I want to show you something that you can't miss. I want you to see not only what Jesus said in this text about glorification, I want you to know and pay particular attention to when he said it. These are the last words of Jesus. These are the words that would be remembered when cobwebs formed on an empty tomb and blood dried on an empty cross. And during this time, as he faced that cross one day away, he said, this is where I'm glorified. In other words, Jesus is glorified in his cross. And listen to me, you're glorified in your cross too. Uh, there's a crazy branch of our family that teaches health and wealth all the time if you use the right principles. That's not true. Now, Presbyterians like me think it's never true, so we're just as bad. But, but it's not true that everything goes well all the time. Every day, the world rolls over on top of somebody who was just sitting on top of it. And, uh, and when it happens, that is your opportunity for glory. Every time a pagan, and you've heard me say this before, gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer, so the world can see the difference and that Christian is glorified. Every time an unbeliever goes through a bad marriage and a divorce, a Christian goes through the same thing, so the world can see the difference and the Christian can be glorified. Every time abuse takes place of an unbeliever, the same thing happens to a Christian. So the world can see the difference and the Christian will be glorified. Do you know why you know about Mother Teresa? Well, she served in a hard place and I visited it one time in India and I, I don't want to serve there, but a lot of people serve God in a lot of places. How come she was lifted up? Well, after she died, we found out. Her diary was posted posthumously. And in the diary, she was honest about her pain, about her doubts, about the fact that she was never sure that God loved her, about the periods of harsh depression she went through 
pagans, when they read it, said, see there, your hero's not a hero. But Christians, mature ones, understood that she was glorified in the pain she suffered. Now, it's another subject, and we don't have time to go into it, but, but we probably ought to say something about resurrection, too. <laughs> Jesus was one day away from glorification and the cross, and he was three days away from the resurrection and glorification, too. So you got to go through it, and it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes for you guys, and I, I know that. But, but it's your opportunity, and you were created for this moment to shine, to be glorified. You know, it's interesting sometimes to think about last words, what people say on their deathbeds. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and I've stood by more deathbeds than you can possibly imagine. I've listened to confessions on those deathbeds. I've seen the anger and the denial and the emptiness and the darkness, and I hate it because death is the enemy. I have a friend, her husband was on my staff in... Uh, her name is Katie, and uh, she was, she loved her father, but they hadn't spoken for over 20 years, and she got the message that her father was dying in California, and Katie was in Miami, and a family member said, if you want to say anything to him, you better come right now. She immediately got on a plane, flew to California, rushed to the hospital and to his deathbed, and she leaned over and said, Oh, Daddy, I love you so much. And he opened his eyes and said, I hate you. And he died. Every time I tell that, I, I wince. How could that go on? I can tell you the number of times when I've told people about Jesus when they were on their deathbed. I would say to them, listen, it's time to stop fooling around because you're going to die. And you're going to meet the God who created you. And I'm going to show you something that you really need to see. That's what my friend and doctor friend said to my father. And my father, after all those years, and he was an alcoholic, he did some really bad things. And he thought he wasn't good enough to be a Christian. And in a very childlike and simple way, he bowed his head. And among the last words he spoke was, Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I've heard others too, I can't tell you. How often an unbeliever would say to me, no, I don't want to talk about it. I am not a hypocrite, and I'm not going to be a hypocrite when I die. And I want to say, listen, go ahead and be a hypocrite. It's worth it. But people generally die the way they've lived. 
And I've noticed that for a lot of years. I wish you could have been there when my mother died. She, uh, I wanted to call everybody I knew and say, come and see a godly woman die. She was in a coma and uh, was thrashing around. And the nurse came in and I held my mother's arms while she thrashed and the nurse held her legs. And mother during that whole time said, oh God, I forgive them and I'm free. <laughs> I'll never forget the nurse saying, I've seen them spit and cuss but I don't very often see them pray. Deathbed words. Well, the texts that we're studying during our time together, those are the deathbed words of the Son of God. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's going to say something really, really important. And when he says it, it's about love. This is an amazing text. Let me take a little bit of time, show you what I've discovered as I've studied this text. The first thing you ought to note is the graphic of love. Note in the text that Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and here it comes, even as I have loved you. An illustration is better than instruction. And Jesus was an illustration. I'm not sure what love is. Oh, I know the Greek words that C.S. Lewis made famous. Eros, yeah, that's about sex. Philios, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Stogie, the way I love my pipe and agape disinterested love, but that describes it. It doesn't tell what it is. I think you've got to feel it in order to know it. You know, we don't love very well. Did you? Well, I'm sure you have if you've been around very long. You've either seen the movie or the play, uh, South Pacific. You remember... You remember when the lieutenant is in love with a Polynesian lady and uh, there are obvious problems with that in the culture and the racist nature of it. And he sings a song that if you think about it can be really sad. You know what he sings? You gotta be taught to hate. You gotta be taught. No, you don't. Who told him that? You don't have to be taught to hate. It comes natural. We hate easily. It comes with mother's milk. It's a part of who we are. It's called the fall, and it goes deep, and it's selfish, and it's dark. That's why Jesus had to go first. Jesus had to go first. As I have loved you. I've taught you this before, but you never listen. <laughs> you can't love until you've been loved. And then you can only love to the degree to which you have been loved. Jesus is the graphic. 
We love because he went first. Because he first loved us. I, I'm often offensive when I preach and teach. I don't really mean to be that way, but when you're old, you're irritated about being old already. It takes very little to tick you off. <laughs> I try to be truthful. And the truth is, it's really hard for you to love somebody like me. I can lie. I can say bad things about you. And if not say them, I can think them. I'm a hard person to love. How, if, if their salvation is dependent on your loving me, how in the fat are you going to do that? Listen, let Jesus love you. And listen, you don't fool me. I can in my mind's eye. I can picture you sitting at home with your Bible open, and you look very spiritual, quite nice. It's kind of embarrassing, you being in your pajamas and all. <laughs> but you do look spiritual, but I know the truth about you. You're just like me, and you're going you're gonna to be a hard person to love. Sometimes you won't speak to me. Sometimes you'll say bad things. How in the world am I going to love you? Let me tell you. I got to let Jesus love me. That's the graphic of love. Better an illustration than instruction. And then there's something else in this text. I want you, I want you to note the simplicity of the commandment that Jesus gave. A new commandment I give to you. All right, we're to debunk the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis. No. Learn the five points of Calvin. Study Burkhoff. Read Schaefer and systematic theology. No, he didn't do any of that. He says, you guys love each other. That's it. Yeah. You guys just love each other. I have a friend, and his name is John Bechtel. You'd love him. And he would love you, by the way. He was the first missionary back into China after he had served there for years and had, had to leave. And when they raised the bamboo curtain, he was the first one in line. And he's a big old hulking guy. And the lady that was giving people permission to come in had a question on the form that said, are you a missionary? And John put his big hulk over the table and he said, lady, do I look like a missionary? And she said, sorry, of course not. And they passed him. The stories he tells of that first time back into China are just wonderful. Um, one of the things he said happened very often, and he speaks Chinese and Mandarin without even an accent. <laughs> and people would say to him, how, this is a complicated language. How do you speak it so well? And John would say, it's not complicated. These little children are all speaking it. Jesus would say, this is not complicated. The little children love their kittens. 
and their parents. C.S. Lewis said, if you never want to be hurt, don't love anything and certainly not a pet. And your heart will turn to concrete and you'll never, ever get free. But you won't be hurt either. I know what I said about you didn't have to be taught to hate, but there's something else inside us because we're created in the image of God. And that is we're drawn to love. And everybody can do it. You don't have to be a brain surgeon. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be well-versed in Scripture. You don't have to repeat the creeds. Jesus said, look, just you guys love each other. And Jesus is here right now. And he says the same thing. Hey, guys, I know. Forget about all that other stuff. Just love each other. And if you can't do it, just sit there and let me love you. There's something else. Note not only the graphic of love and the simplicity of love. Note in this text the attraction of love. I love this. By this, everybody's going to know. What's that? That you love each other. They're going to know that you belong to me. And then in John 17, and we're not there, but we'll get there. In John 17, Jesus prays for us. And he prays that we be one in a loving relationship so that the world might know. I'll tell you, our being, uh, loving each other is an attractive thing. It really does. The next time a pagan shows at Northland, go hug a Christian and make sure the pagan's looking. The next time a pagan comes to Northland, go to a Christian and say, how's your mom who was so sick? And then shed a tear and, and the non-Christian will be blown away because that's an attractive quality. We had a young lady, by the way, she's an ordained Methodist minister now. Her name was Lainey, and I loved her a lot. And she lived with us a long time. She'd come out of some really bad stuff. Father had died, and there was some trouble with her mother, so we invited her to live with her. She used to follow me behind me, smoking a pipe. And I would say, put that thing, that nasty thing away. And she said, well, you do. And I'd say, you do what I say, not what I do, okay? And she, and she went to Philadelphia College of the Bible, they almost kicked her out of there. And I loved her so much. We were on vacation one year on Cape Cod and sitting by the beach at sunset. And I looked over and Lainey was crying. I said, honey, what are you crying about? She said, oh, I, I wish I had a father like you. I wish I had a family like yours. 
That's what we want the world to say. When they see church, they don't want to see the division and the anger and the I've got to be right and I am right, so deal with me kind of thing. They want to see real, genuine love. And that happens at Northland. I've watched it for years. When you were in the skating rink and before that, when you guys were in the school, you didn't do everything right. In fact, you did a lot of things wrong, frankly. But you loved each other, and it showed, and it was attractive. Do you know the last church that I served, and that's been a long time ago, was in Miami. We used to have evangelism training classes. You know what we did with those? We quit having them. And you say, because you... You don't care about evangelism? No, because people were coming to Christ without the classes. You know how? They would come to our church and they would feel warm by our fire. Then I have one other thing and I'm finished. Jesus, uh, when he talked about love, let us see the graphic of love, the simplicity of love, and the attractiveness of love. But I've saved the, I've saved the best and the last, the astonishment of love. It's no accident that in the text that was assigned to me and juxtapositioned right next to what Jesus said about glorification and loving one another is the dialogue Jesus had with Peter, which reflected Peter's sin. Love and sin, that doesn't seem to go together. Yes, it does. Don't believe it when people tell you that obedience and love are wedded at the hip. That's not true. It's simply not true. In fact, and I don't want you to write me a letter and say I'm encouraging sin, because I'm not. Sin is destructive and horrible and dark. But there is a sense in which you can't love unless you've sinned. When we say things like, and don't ever say it again, we're here to love the unlovely. That's not love, that's self-righteousness. Until you know you're the unlovely and you're an unlovely person loving unlovely people, that's love. How do I know that? I know that from Luke 7. It's one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. That's when the prostitute, that was a dumb prostitute. She crashed a dinner party of Pharisees. Uh, sinner can repent, but stupid's forever. And and what happened at that dinner party will absolutely blow you away. Read it. But one of the amazing and wonderful things Jesus said in Luke 7 is this. He who is forgiven little loves little. Huh. Let me say it again. He who is forgiven little loves little. So you don't have to be obedient to love. You don't have to be pure. 
maybe as you've been listening to what I've been teaching me, teaching you and me too, maybe you've thought, I'm just not that good. I can't be. Yeah, you are. And the fact that you're not good means that you can love. Because the person who's forgiven little loves little. A number of years ago, a couple of uh, my students were in downtown. I may have told you this. When you get old, you forget sometimes. A couple of my students uh, were in downtown Orlando, and there's one of those street preachers there. He didn't have a Bible like mine. He had a big black Bible, and it had opened. He was preaching repentance and salvation. And while he was preaching across the street, a young woman walked past him in a very tight red dress. And he stopped what he was saying and he pointed at her and he said, whore, whore, repent. And my two students looked at each other and one said to the other, God bless him. We're all whores. I just don't know how to say that in a way that people will understand. So if you're unlovely, you can love. And if you listen to what I taught you during this time, you know why. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to check out Steve's books, plus some exclusive and limited time offers at keylife.org slash store.